coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Happy Friday to you, unless you're stuck in traffic because you didn't know Taylor Swift and Janet Jackson were performing at the same time downtown Atlanta. Oh my gosh. Please avoid the downtown connector. I'm just saying. My public service announcement. I actually just sent some friends of mine off who drove in from upstate South Carolina, but wanted a free place to park, and I don't live far from the streetcar, so, hmm, Marta, it's Smarta. I've been telling y'all that. Anyway, got some time earlier today to talk with my good friend, journalist, documentarian, King Williams, about a few things going on in and around Atlanta and on the left side of politics. So let's dive right into that conversation. So when I reached out to you last week, we were in the throes of, aha, there's no gunpowder residue on Tortuguita's body. And then the GBI, after the DeKalb County coroners released their findings, said, no, actually, we uh, did research ourselves. And back on January 23rd, we determined there was gunpowder residue on his hands. Why did the GBI wait, do you think? Like they had this five days after this shooting took place. So why did they withhold that information? So I think it's important to know why they probably hit uh, one. And I'm trying to sound that like a conspiracy theorist. Well, yeah, but, sure. I, get um, it. I think if you're the GBI, one, you're 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 going to try to do a more thorough job. I think though, for them, the narrative of what was going out there about um, Tort being, you know, unarmed or shot mm-hmm. is it just got way ahead of them. And I, I do think this is just a larger part of like the cop city thing, which is. There was a good old boy system of Georgia and the GBI is and legitimately deserves a lot of criticism for how they handle things. Mm-hmm. There was, I think, some, some like the intercept or, or the conversation a few years ago did some investigation on that. They do have a history of really mucking up cases, right? Especially mm-hmm. involving officers. So I can understand. Um, but for them, they're going to say that the, he did have a residue. The coroner's office is going to say something different. The GBI is going to supersede what the county says. And I think this is going to be one of those things where there's never going to be a answer at this point yeah. um, and i do think though on the protesters side they're going to have more no pun intended ammunition um for this going forward because every time the gbi says something new evidence comes out that contradicts that and i think that's kind of why they had to wait make sure everything was really completely correct on their end of the investigation and then come out with the statement because they realized we really don't have great narrative training we really don't own the narrative like we thought we did or we did in yeah. the past yeah, no, thousand percent with the narrative. That's that was my complaint all along. Uh, was that why why wait to say that? No, we we have this this information that we determined five days after the shooting. We just decided not to release it until contrary information came out. It just plays into that narrative that there's a cover up, and as you said, it, it doesn't help them own the narrative that they're on the right side of this. Yeah, but that's that's where we are now. Do you think, and, and we've, we've seen uh, some calls, not enough, I don't think, but we've seen calls for an independent investigation, the Department of Justice to step in. Do you, do you see that in the offing? Do you think it's going to happen? There probably will be an investigation, independent one. What that looks like going forward, though, I don't know, right? And I do want to be clear about that. Again, I just think this is going to end up being just one of those things where if your blue lives matter, police do no wrong. You're going to have your way. See, if you're a protester and you're like, the police, it's going to end up in one way. We're never going to really get true information on that. The only thing we do know for sure at this point is a protester was killed in the South River Forest uh, and the police hit him. Well, in this case, the state police hit him multiple times in doing so. Hmm. How we got there, who did what first, we'll never really know. 
Uh, so that's unfortunate. That's kind of where this is going to end up at. I hate this for his uh, family, for those who loved him, for those who were, were out there with I, I really do. I hate this for them because there's just so much uncertainty still about how this all went down. And you, you hear so many stories from folks who, who knew Tort that talked about how, how he was a peace-loving, pacifist type, and yet apparently there was a gun in the tent that was registered to him that he purchased. And the narrative is that he, he, he shot first. Yeah, um, I think too. Like even on that point, I think as you're saying it, that's kind of how local media is portraying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and this is again just like after just a basic second level of investigation into it. He sh- and this is how, if you want to believe this, for how to, from what's been said, the GBI may have shot a warning shot into the tent first, in which he replied uh, with a fire, and then that led him to be subsequently killed. That seems like based on some stuff like APD's body cams that were there based on GBI recanting and then rehashing their statements several times and eyewitnesses of protesters who were there, that seems to be likely what actually happened. Um, again, I think this is just a Rorschach test of, well, he shouldn't have shot. He shouldn't have owned a gun. If he's a, like you said, like he's, if he's a protester, he doesn't need a, a weapon. Right. And mm. I think that's kind of going to be the shift in, in this argument as well. You know, he had a gun. And he shot back, regardless if they shot a warning shot or not. He should have never shot. He should have complied, right? And I don't know too many people who are okay with receiving a shot and just complying with that bullet. If you are that person, let me know because you have a level of patience that I don't. Mm-hmm. But um, that that's just kind of where it's going to end up, and it's just unfortunate. But even from the from the get go, there was a, a GBI statement made on January 18th at a press conference that was hastily held that was contrary to what wound up being their story down the road. We later found out about, well, first of all, that statement on the 18th was he shot at us completely unprovoked. And then the story was, well, we spoke to him while he's inside the tent. He's talking back to us or not saying a word. And so he shot pepper balls into the tent and then he shot us. Yeah. There there just doesn't seem to be a consistency of story. Right. Um, I, I'm just going to leave that there. Like, I don't even want to, I'm just going to leave that there. Cause I do think the G is going to recant whatever statement it is. And I do think the real thing to focus on is just what their, their future correction is going to be. Um, and what they're going to do with next, like what they're going to do next in that regard. So, so, well, all right, let's turn the page then. So the mayor has a new committee that allegedly is going to hold meetings that will be live streamed. So folks can at least, see what's happening in these meetings and hear what's being said in these meetings, but the public participation is still kind of held at bay. Do you have any confidence in this committee? Uh, No, actually. And I do want to say there is one thing I do want to kind of bring up now. And I think as a journalist, you should always bring up whenever you have like a conflict of interest. And one of the people I know who was on the panel, uh, Christopher Bruce of the ACLU, this is somebody I went to college with, somebody I know who actually talked to me about being on the panel. Mm-hmm. Um, I told him initially, yes, you should, because I think civil liberties and representing what you all do with the ACLU should be at the table of that. Right. Um, after that point, we have not talked about it in a couple of weeks now. Uh, at that point in time, though, I will say he left on his own reconnaissance from that due to some of the issues regarding public input and just like transparency. So I do want to bring that up first. Um, so I will say when it comes to this panel, I don't like like a lot of people. And this is where I do generally side with the activists on this regard, which is it's probably not going to be a lot that comes from it. Um, There's a lot of general concerns and Atlanta is good about making committees and plans and never implementing either of them. 
mm-hmm. uh, or rather never implementing plans and having committees that do nothing, right? I think this is going to be a lot of hogwash. I don't really expect eight months from now when the year is over and we're going into January. I think you, you could see a scenario where half the people who are on the panel are no longer participating actively and that panel comes up with nothing. And if they do, maybe just some list of recommendations that fall to the wayside. Um, there isn't really any mechanism to hold the police nor this panel accountable, nor to actually influence or build on any recommendations, right? So I think that we just got to look at how the funding of Cop City structure, the structure of APD, the structure of the city council, and the structure of this committee, and like the people with the least amount of power now are apparently, quote unquote, here are going to have the most amount of voice. And that just seems like illogical based on what's been going on. So as we talk, we're heading into what is going to be a pretty calamitous weekend in downtown Atlanta between a rescheduled Janet Jackson concert and a Taylor Swift weekend takeover at Mercedes-Benz. There are people camping out just to buy merch, for crying out loud, and it happened since last night. Insanity, man. But uh, I'm so engaged by this like whole touring business right now. This is so fascinating to me. Right, right. Well, the, the, the way that Janet was able to say, oh, okay, let me just get my stuff out of there so the Hawks can play one more game. I don't even want to talk about that. That game was, ugh. They had it. They had that game. They got to get rid of Trey Young, and I say this now. Like, Throw, throw your eggs at me, people. I don't care. No, I'm I'm with you. I'm on the same page. Uh, I'm I'm over the softness and the like. When he doesn't succeed, it's always the shrugging and looking at the officials. Like, why didn't you call a foul or shooting from the logo? And you know he gets one out of ten, and that's great when he gets the one. But come on, man, you're a point guard. Pass the ball. Right. Keep that same energy. Keep that same energy. Yeah, and we'll see how that plays out. Anyway. Back, back to my point. So we're heading into what, what's going to be a kerfuffle of people, a massive humanity heading downtown. And one <laughs> of the things that I love about Mercedes-Benz Stadium and State Farm Arena is Marta takes you right to the doorstep. And yet you don't hear a whole lot of talk from public officials. Even GDOT, Georgia Department of Transportation yesterday, thought they were going to be cute and put out a little uh, press release with all the Taylor Swift and Janet Jackson song titles in the mix. But they didn't mention Marta. They just said alternative transportation. Like, come on, are the we biggest know what that, we know what that is, is. They're just haters. Like, nobody is a bigger hater and a bigger stick in the mud than GDOT. When you think of people, especially boomers, like GDOT is just the boomer agency. When you think of uh, an organization that is antiquated, that's determined to do only one thing and one thing only, they are a hammer with everything else is seen as a nail. GDOT are haters. They are boomer haters, not in terms of actually being a baby boomer, but boomer in terms of being old and antiquated and set in their position. Mm. I said it at me. You can reach out to me. I don't care. That's how GDOT is. Like they are, they're just generally haters about everything. And so when I saw that, I was like, I'm glad this little intern who worked there, um, who, who got a chance to get that off. Right. And um, right. got to have a little fun with the song titles. Cute. Yeah. Like, you know, let the interns cook, but like overall, <laughs> no, it just blew my mind that it didn't come up. And I started doing the math. I'm like, you know, there's like 23 Marta stations, you know, uh, that, that, folks could park at there's free parking at the Marta stations. If, if just a hundred spaces were used by people that were coming downtown to watch either or both of those concerts were to utilize them, that's like a five, 6% reduction in the number of people that are going to be coming to park. You're thinking like a man who really wants to win. And I like it. So <laughs> I do. I like that. I like that a lot. Just trying to make some sense of this, man. L- listen, I, I lived in Myrtle beach, South Carolina for 11 years. And when I'd come into town to watch uh, a Falcons game uh, or a concert I grew up in Georgia. I knew you don't you don't drive into downtown thinking you're going to get a parking space because you're going to fight traffic. You're going to pay a lot of money and you're still going to wind up doing a lot of walking. So yes. we always use Marta satellite lots. We always drove into the nearest Marta satellite lot 
parked and took the train in. And it's it, it it's crazy how like when you when you start as, as far out as you as you do like Decatur or North Springs or or some other station like that, you don't see a whole lot of people going to the same place you are until you get like two stops before you're going, and then all of a sudden it's a mass of humanity. And I was like, well, those aren't the people that really need to make use of it as much, but okay, at least you're seeing it happen inside the perimeter. And I think that for Atlanta, we just got to have the come to Jesus moment. If we're going to do, like you said, just be Atlanta of 1983, then we're going to have like real issues for 2023 and 2023 going and 2033 going forward. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because people in Atlanta really are just determined to do the basic minimum and not change on any regard. And people just have this mindset of, and it's a suburban mindset, but it's also like an Atlanta mindset of like my thing, my way, my point of view is obviously the correct way. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that with like the Taylor Swift situation where you have somebody who sold out a 70,000 seat football arena and then Janet Jackson has a 20,000 seat basketball arena. There's If everyone's going on a one-to-one ratio in a car, there's not even enough parking space for all those people. Mm-mm. Like we're not thinking like the forest and the trees here. And I just think that it's one of those things um, we've just got to think about. Do you think this played a role in why the Democratic National uh, Convention's not coming here in 2024? I'm kind of, uh, I mean, I, I get it. You know, the, the, the state, ha- it's a red, you know, we're still a, a red controlled state. We've got, a, you know, abortion bans and crazy gun laws and not a lot of union representation. I think those those played greater roles. But if, if I'm organizing a major convention of any kind, political or otherwise, I'm looking at how easy it is to get people around. And it's not easy to get people around Atlanta. Yeah, that was one of the things that they actually did list. A lot of analysts were saying unofficially um, about that, which is, they're basically a long way of saying Atlanta doesn't really have an adequate transportation system. And I, I knew that they didn't want to like jab them in the stomach on that one, but it's true. Uh, I think the other one is too, like when you read like some of the analyst statements on that, and especially ones from the DNC was like, and they said, and other things, right? And so the other thing is Atlanta, again, we, we operate since 1983. When you come to Atlanta for a convention, you're typically in downtown Atlanta, mm-hmm. actually near where the Taylor Swift concert and Janet Jackson concert. So you go either to one of those two buildings or the World Congress Center, which is all within a thousand feet of each other. They have Centennial Park, and then you have to effectively drive to your hotel. Like, there's no nightlife amenities. There's no daytime amenities. There's no place for a family to really just hang out and eat and walk around and get lost. And at a certain point in time, Atlanta just looks like big Birmingham. No offense. I like Birmingham. Shout out to my girl, Rayma, out there. And, um, you know, uh, Candace. It's just big Birmingham. And it's one of those things where if you really want to grow, I think that that's something we got to think about. I do think if, if I'm Atlanta, I, I want to put in a bid again for 2028 once. And at that point, the reason I bring up 2028 is that's probably the bigger election for them. And it's probably the one they can realistically get, especially if your president is Ron DeSantis. Um, you probably need to be in the South again. And so I do think in 2028, you'll have the Gulch development fully finished, which is Centennial Yards, plus a lot of the downtown Atlanta stuff from Newport around um, the Norfolk Southern building plus Castleberry Hill will have new development. So it would be, to your point, a lot easier to move around, right? And a lot easier to be in like a cityscape. Maybe go for 2028 DNC. Yeah, that might be the better play anyway, especially now that Joe Biden is basically the rubber stamp nominee. There may not be as much excitement for 2024. And I'll get to that in a minute, but I got to give Birmingham its due. When uh, UAB built its new football stadium, there is a lot of walkable shopping and restaurant activity right outside that stadium i know that because i was there for a softball tournament two springs ago and uh the usfl had started playing we're like what is all you know we just wanted to go downtown to eat somewhere and we found that place with all the restaurants and it's literally right next to the football stadium but the parking was kind of crazy because there was an actual usfl game going on so i'll give birmingham its due although they have parking and transportation issues themselves every place in the south does there's not a single place in the south that, that that will 
Stand by. More of my conversation with King Williams after the break on The Ron Show on America One Radio. Welcome back to The Ron Show. So I had a little time earlier today to chat with my friend, documentarian, local journalist King Williams. Let's talk about all things Atlanta and left-of-center politics. Let's dive right on back into that conversation. So Joe's running again. We had uh, just a few days ago, Marianne Williamson stopped by. She uh, made an appearance at Emory for the uh, Emory Democrats. She was supposed to speak at Georgia State University, and she sort of insinuated that somebody made a call and made that unhappen. So I don't know what's going on there. But how excited are we supposed to get about a second Joe Biden presidential campaign when 70% of the country says that that's not what they want? Or not, not that they don't want him, they just don't want him to run again. 60% of the country doesn't want Donald Trump to run again either, but it's more than half the Democrats too. Are, are, what, what are we going to do? What are we like? I've got to mentally prepare myself for the next year and a half of feigning excitement for a candidate that has done a decent job. I'll give him a B minus, but I got to be excited about this for the next 16 months. So what are your thoughts? You know what? Actually, this is where Georgia comes in. So I look at what happens is the leadership is going through a thing a lot of other organizations are. And I, I put this on something else. The Democrats have this thing where they're effectively nine different parties and the three major parties, which are like the old school centrist dem of Joe Biden, arguably also Hillary Clinton, even Barack Obama are kind of just like, while they may have the most seniority, the most political cachet, they're not necessarily the things that's going to attract Gen Z or millennials nope. for that matter. Right. Um, the other end is that they seem like a safer bet to bring in would be uh, swing voters, especially swing voters that are, are actually more centrist in their views, not people who are just like dismayed with the Republican Party. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's why that pick is there. I think what we're seeing in Georgia, in particular, we saw the second run of Stacey Abrams, where there the diminished enthusiasm was apparent between 2018 and 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also saw it in Florida with Charlie Chris versus DeSantis, where that even though the turnout was relatively on par where it was four years prior, in both cases, like gerrymandering is involved and like voter suppression is involved, but like regardless. The enthusiasm wasn't there. The negativity was really high amongst those two groups. I mentioned Gen Z and millennials. And then also like the steadfast Democrats of the party weren't super engaged to donate. They weren't super engaged to form PACs or to like do just your local door knocking. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that again with Joe Biden. In many ways, Joe Biden is Ronald Reagan without the culture wars attached to him, right? In the sense that Reagan in 84 was running high on cutting a lot of things. He had a lot of people behind him. The culture wars definitely shifted. The media definitely shifted at that point pro-Reagan. And he kind of came in and, and slam dunked in 84, right? And I think with Joe Biden, you have this issue where you're actually getting a lot of stuff done, but there's no enthusiasm. But you have a lot of the backers who wants to keep this party going and they're gonna put money into it but like the people aren't there right so yeah. and unlike reagan who it's like the reverse of reagan since the reagan was slashing everything joe biden is growing a lot of things and so that's still not necessarily in favor with a lot of people so i do think that we're going to see this issue going forward and i think for the democrats long term the republicans are playing for 2028 and i know that's something that the democrats don't ever do they don't think ahead uh, so mm-hmm. you already know kemp and george is already challenging all stuff in 26 and then the Republicans are already starting to get their senatorial challenges for 2024. Now they already have their people that they want to challenge in 2024 and in 2026. And they're already thinking about who they're going to place on the Supreme Court with Clarence Thomas, if Ron DeSantis is or Trump is the president, right? Mm-hmm. They're playing for a longer game. Uh, and then Kemp is always seen as like, and Glenn Youngkin are seen as potentially like the backups in 2028 if DeSantis does or Trump doesn't get it done in 2024. The Democrats are not thinking like that. They don't even have a bench of people on the state level, either governors or senators to even be would be president. You're not so, excited about Gretchen Whitmer? I like her. I think she should stay where she is. Uh, maybe when she's done, do a senatorial run uh, hmm. in Michigan. 
sometimes it's better just to maintain the line than it is to kind of move forward, right? If I'm the Dems in Michigan, like really establish like your your playbook, get your policies in order, get your people in order, and then work on Wisconsin, then work on places like Illinois, right? Now Chicago, Illinois, then you have a separate strategy altogether for Chicago. And the Democrats work harder on the Midwest, which is also why you lost Atlanta lost the DNC. So that's what I'm thinking about long term. And who are people my age? Like there's nobody who's I'm like one of the older and millennials. We're all in our thirties now. Our Gen Z counterparts aren't even engaged politically. Like so who is the next Gen Z person to to come up and take office? You have Maxwell Frost down in Florida, but that's literally one person out of every available person in Congress. Mm -hmm. So that should be my thing is like people aren't excited for Joe Biden because they don't see themselves reflected in the policies and the committees and things like that. Yeah. Um, and the, the ones who are, they like the younger ones, like AOC and Ilhan Omar, like they're basically given the scarlet letter and AOC is going through her own personal shifts up there. So it's kind of hard for them to see themselves if everyone looks like grandpa. All right. Up against a hard break. More with King Williams after the break on the Ron show on the America one radio app, America one radio.com. Follow the Ron show on Twitter at Ron show ATL. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Ron with King Williams talking about the Democrats' prospects in 2024 now that Joe Biden has announced he is running for re-election. My gut tells me that this feels a lot like 2016 to me, but maybe even worse. I mean, folks weren't excited in general about the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, but she did generate some excitement, at least among women, young women. And inexplicably, I, I'm a gay man. I don't understand how like the, the, the gay men just got all behind her when she wasn't there for us in the 1980s and the 1990s. And, but, you know, a lot of a lot of gay men don't. They don't I don't, I don't want to generalize. I'm not going to do that. But some gay men are like, yes, women. We like women. Brittany, <laughs> Gaga, Madonna. Yeah. Hillary. It didn't make any sense to me then either. But th- that's what scares me. It just scares me the the enthusiasm. Uh, gap is going to be there. And and I almost feel like the only way Joe Biden prevails a second time is if Donald Trump is the nominee again, because then they can at least play the do you which which one would you prefer? Would you prefer the somewhat normalcy of the Biden presidency or go back to that? Hmm. I'm going to have a hot take. I think people in general want to go to normalcy of Biden presidency. I think the culture war has infected people so much that where people think of they think and I spent a lot of time conservative media and just like following people, especially like religious ones. A lot of people think in many ways that Joe Biden already is here. Like the recession's already here. They think it's 1984 already, mm-hmm. not the book, but like actually 1984 recession yeah. down. And so like in their mind, Joe Biden has already, you know, brought this about us. So like, I'm not going to vote for him again because Trump or DeSantis or whoever can, can bring us to prosperity and make it easier for me, make it better for my family, because that's all I've been seeing. Right. Inflation's gone up. Gas has gone up. Um, but that's even, a narrative more than facts. Inflation is actually decreasing. It's a, it's actually going down, and and the unemployment rate has stayed low. The economy's actually done oddly pretty well in this recession. They keep talking about has yet to arrive. Well, that's the thing, though. Like when you all you have to do is run the ball. Republicans understand if you just run the ball consistently, then that you will have the thing that you need. And in this case, they're just running the ball consistently. So now everyday people, especially would be Democrats, especially like. A lot of black Democratic voters who I, I kind of like uh, talk to a lot and just see what's going on in their spaces, they feel that way too, right? And like they didn't necessarily, they don't look at, listen to Tucker, they don't watch Stephen Crowder stuff, but that narrative kind of bleeds over into their content. And so like they have just watched it and they just feel that way because that's what's been repeated over and over again. And the Democrats don't really understand how to counter that. Um, because they, and- they drown out the transformative movement, the Marianne Williamson types, the Bernie Sanders types. They don't want... 
they don't want that to they, they, they want to keep that in a vacuum don't want to give it any air Would, do you think that that's just my thinking on it it's like how about a seat at the table for progressives stop stop pretending like everything is fantastic and and, and gung-ho let's admit that we still have work to do i, I think that is a, a salient argument to make for a re-election campaign listen it ain't as bad as it used to be but it still ain't great. We've got work to do. Let's keep at it. Yeah, I think that it's it's hmm. to your point. I do think that it's it's a matter of if you're the Democrats, you want Joe Biden to be your center, right? Like for the reason we mentioned earlier, um, you don't want a Marion Williamson, you don't want a Bernie Sanders because you are, I, I, but but bring him to the table. Yeah, and I do think that's the one thing Republicans do. They kind of put people like that. Like, what's the, the crazy name? The woman recently on the state level, Jesus Guns and Babies Lady. I forgot her name. Yeah, Candace. Yeah, Candace Taylor. So she's doing something now with the Republican Party in a, in a prominent position where the Democrats just was like, all right, cool, we're done. You're sitting outside the door. Yeah. Um, and that kind of is like the problem, right? Like, because if you bring a Bernie or Mary Williamson or even an AOC in or something like that, those people still feel like, you know, it's not what I want, but at least I'm in some capacity right and like that's kind of the issue you 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 can't be like we're all just this this is our candidate this is the type of person we want and then expect people to have that enthusiasm or like to have like the bench of people you need when when the time comes up those are the sort of signals that i think that the young voters who are issues oriented voters uh, they they want to see action on guns they want to see action on the minimum wage they want to see student loan uh, you know forgiveness not just you know a, a band-aid those are the sorts of little signals that i think would tell them hey we actually do hear what you're saying but again pretending everything's great now i mean the rollout video to me spoke more about it was like a victory lap but it was to, to me uh, it, we're, we're, we're not at, we're not at the point you know there, there's still a lot of game on the clock and you know we've we've got a slim lead but there's still a lot of game to play. Yeah, I do think, though, like to your point about that, it's a lot of game to play. I do think right now it's a matter of, of what game do you want to play? Do you want to play the game of incrementalism or do you want to play the game to win the championship? And mm -hmm. I think some Democrats want to win the championship, but not understanding that what it takes to really get there. And I don't think they would like their party if it takes to win the championship. And then some don't are for incrementalism. And then some are just like not for either. So I think you're kind of in this this weird boat where everything is kind of where they are right now. I feel you. King Williams, thanks for the time. I appreciate the conversation, man. Let's catch up, grab a grab a bite or some coffee at some point in time. And, uh, Most we'll definitely. In depth, all right. I'm here for it. Let's go. All right. I appreciate you, buddy. All right, man. It's unfortunate that I was actually light on time with King. Uh, we he, he likes to interview via Zoom. And I, I like that forum, too. I like looking at people while I'm talking to them. I uh, don't get to do that very often. And one of the reasons why I, I sort of shy away from it, and maybe I just need to break down and put on my big boy pants and buy a Zoom account, you know, the, the paid account, you can just go on as long as you want to. When you're using the free stuff, you got like 30 minutes. Is it 30, 35? Maybe it's 35. I think it's, it may be 35. So I, I may have cut us five minutes short, but one of these days I'm going to grow up and, well, one of these days this show might actually, I don't know, break even or make money. Feel free to, by the way, contribute to The Ron Show if you are uh, a business owner. You'd like to advertise on The Ron Show? Uh, anyway, another form. We'll talk about this some other time. Uh, I wanted to talk to him a little bit about the shooting death of a prominent Atlanta trans woman. The AJC reporting yesterday that a 17-year-old has been arrested in the shooting death of a transgender woman at a Southwest Atlanta shopping center. 
Jermarcus Jernigan is facing charges of murder and aggravated assault in the death of Rashida Williams, who was 35, known in the transgender community as Coco Dadal or Hollywood Coco. Jernigan turned himself in Wednesday at a Northwest Atlanta police precinct, according to the police department. Williams appeared to be breathing when she was discovered the night of April 18th by two women at the Holmes Plaza on Martin Luther King Jr. Drive, a 911 caller told dispatcher she believed Williams was shot in the face and she was unconscious. She was pronounced dead at the scene once authorities arrived. The AJC continues to report in surveillance footage confirmed by Atlanta police of the moments leading up to Williams' death, a man wearing a Falcons jersey could be seen walking behind her. Investigators had also released images of a person of interest wanted for questioning. Police did not say how Jernigan was tied to the case. In addition to the murder and assault charges, Jernigan faces a count of possessing a gun during the commission of a felony. He's being held in the Fulton County Jail. It's a tragic story. Something that uh, doesn't come up very often when we talk about uh, the transgender community and transgender right is the hostility that transgender folks, not just from Republicans or conservatives or your typical suburban or rural white voter, the transgender community faces hostility from even the lesbian and gay community, from uh, bisexuals who are attracted to, uh, well, I don't even have to explain what bisexuality is to you, but they face hostility from within the LGBTQ plus community as well. And for minorities, for the transgender minority, the hostility is very real. The thing about this particular case, uh, as this story in the AJC points out, is that Williams was on the threshold of becoming a star. She was featured in an award-winning documentary called Kokomo City, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January, the AJC writes, and was getting ready to drop a rap album. Uh, The film, which is slated for theatrical release this summer, highlights the experiences of black trans sex workers in New York and Atlanta. In a statement on Instagram, the AJC writes, Director D. Smith, a former cast member of Love & Hip Hop Atlanta, said it was, quote, extremely difficult to process Coco's passing, but as a team, we are more encouraged now than ever to inspire the world with her story. Listen, I'm not transgender. I'm not a person of color. I am a white male who just so happens to be gay. I could, by every right, have grown up as a log cabin conservative. And when I run into log cabin conservatives... Spoiler alert, they tend to be white males. In the South, it's not that uncommon. I can't tell you exactly why it is that I came to be the way I am. I Well, you know what? It's not that I can't. It's just that uh, I don't talk about it very often. Some of my closest friends in college um, really opened my eyes. My uh, female African-American friend, I don't know if I talk about her enough, honestly. Her name is Sonia. She is a dear friend of mine, and she was one of the first people to call me out on my ignorance when I showed it. And I was, I thought, a pretty open-minded young person back then, but she really opened my eyes to something. So, yeah, you know what? Let's give Sonia her credit, her due. Sonia may be the reason that you're even listening to a Ron show, <laughs> if I'm being honest, because maybe I could have grown up a log cabin conservative. I definitely couldn't have changed the fact that I was gay. 
but that's just to tell you, I'm on a different level. I, you know, there are different levels. When you get in the, the elevator to go down basement levels of a building beneath the earth, right? I hate to use that analogy, but that's kind of where we are. We're, we're a little underground in the LGBTQ plus community. The first level down, okay, so you're white, male, and gay. Okay. Culturally speaking, that's the, the next level of normalcy, air quotes I'm using. Then you go to the white lesbian right? Okay. Well, more societally accepted. When you start going down different levels, and again, these aren't levels that I, I, I'm putting us in. I'm just, I'm perceiving where society sees the LGBTQ+. Then you go to people of color who happen to be gay or lesbian. And then you go to the transgender community. If you're white and transgender, you're probably a little bit better off than if you are a person of color and transgender. It is a very hostile life. It is one that those who live it are braver than I can even imagine. To live an everyday life, to accept their true nature, their true being, in a world where even within your own community, if you say you're black, you are going to be treated hostily. You think if you're in a black neighborhood or in a city like Atlanta where the vote tends to swing very blue and yet Coco still walked a life of danger. It's sad. It's gruesome. It's more common than we are maybe even aware. And the sad thing is, is we're only just now starting to keep data on this stuff. I was reading an article from WNYC Studios that talks about how the LGBTQ in the U.S. are nearly four times more likely to experience violence than their straight and cisgender counterparts. But trans folks are even more vulnerable. When this article was written in 2022, 2021 was the deadliest year for transgender and gender nonconforming people since the human rights campaign began keeping count in 2013. But as the article says, data tracking on violent crimes against transgender people are almost certainly an undercount. There's no central reporting database, and police often misidentify victims. Back to writer Chelsea Prince's article in the AJC talking about Coco. She was the second black trans woman to be shot and killed just this month in Southwest Atlanta. Ashley Burton, a 37-year-old hairstylist, died April 11th at the City Park Atlanta Apartments on Fairburn Road. A third transgender woman was shot in another part of the city in January. Chelsea Prince writes, Atlanta police said they share the public's concern regarding the recent attacks, but that none of the recent shootings appeared to be motivated by hate. Although, as the article Raps, a motive in Williams' death, was not offered Thursday. And listen, I'm not going to speculate on the motive, but there had to have been hate in that 17-year-old's heart to have done that. And this is the sort of story that motivates me to speak out when somebody sits on a school board and is accused of spewing anti-trans and anti-gay rhetoric 
in a public setting at a major convention with dozens of witnesses around and targeting a transgender person. Yes, I'm talking about Rob Recksteiner, Cherokee County School Board again. That's why I'm always going to speak out because words can motivate hate and hateful actions and deadly hateful actions as well. That's why I have said it is the responsibility of the Cherokee County School District to see to it that Rob Recksteiner no longer represents them. That's why I have been one of the few constant voices in recent weeks in that regard and why I will not stop talking about that until he addresses it and either confirms or denies, apologizes, or is removed from that school board. Mr. Recksteiner only had hostile words, but sometimes hostile words leads to hostile actions from others, and that has to stop. Final segment for the day, for the week. This is The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you dive right into the podcast pool. Thanks for listening. We appreciate that. Guest column today, uh, an opinion piece in the AJC written by a couple of educators from Mercer University. They speak out against this proposal by the Georgia Professional Standards Commission that wants to remove the mention of diversity from a state teacher preparation program. So the uh, Georgia Professional Standards Commission is set to vote on changes to the Georgia Teacher Academy for Preparation and Pedagogy. How do you say that word? Pedagogy. Okay. Pedagogy. Thank you. We'll go with ped. <laughs> I forgot. We'll go with pedagogy. All right. Okay, I got off the rails a little bit. L- l- let me uh, get to this piece. Robert Helfenbein is a professor of curriculum studies in Mercer's Tift College of Education. Robbie Marsh, an assistant professor of special education, they combined to write this piece, which is in the AJC. As teacher educators, we are writing to express our deep concern about the recent proposal to remove the diversity, equity, and inclusion language from teacher preparation standards in Georgia. The ill-conceived proposal disregards the diverse makeup of the state of Georgia and the communities served by its public school teachers. It is a step backward that fails to acknowledge the crucial role diversity, equity, and inclusion play in creating an inclusive learning environment for all students. As our country becomes more diverse, it is essential that our education system reflects this diversity and prepares teachers to meet the needs of all students. Removing attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion from teacher preparation standards sends a message that we do not value diversity in our classrooms and are not interested in creating welcoming, equitable, and inclusive environments for all students. Furthermore, this removal could limit teacher exposure and training in evidence-based practices to support diverse student abilities and needs. We owe it to our neurotypical and neurodiverse students to have teachers trained in evidence-based practices to support their academic success. We know that teachers trained in diversity, equity, and inclusion are better equipped to recognize and address the unique needs of their students, and they are more likely to create a safe and positive environment in their classroom that fosters learning, well-being, and growth. By removing diversity, equity, and inclusion from the teacher preparation standards, we are hindering our students' ability to succeed in a globalized world. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are not just a moral imperative. It is also essential for the success of our economy and democracy. Our students must learn to work collaboratively with people from different backgrounds, perspectives, and abilities in a world that is becoming increasingly interconnected. 
By removing these terms from teacher preparation standards, we are not preparing our students for the realities of a globalized economy and society. We urge the Georgia Department of Education and the Georgia Professional Standards Commission to reject this proposal and ensure that diversity, equity, and inclusion remain critical components of teacher preparation standards. Quite simply, to ignore a student's culture is to ignore who they are. As educators, we are responsible for creating an inclusive learning environment that benefits all students regardless of their race, gender ability, language, religion, or any other characteristic that may make them unique. First, again, let me credit the writers of this opinion piece that appeared in today's AJC. Robert Helfenbein, Professor of Curriculum Studies at Mercer's Tift College of Education. Robbie Marsh, an Assistant Professor of Special Education. And let me also point out, Mercer University, by the way, it's, it's no liberal bastion. It is historically Baptist-affiliated. But I can't believe in 2023, we're having these discussions about stifling even recognizing diversity, acknowledging the need for equity and inclusion in our public education. It's gobsmacking that we have a movement, not unlike we've had historically in this country in eras we thought we were far more ignorant of culture. We were forcing Native American children to dress in a way contrary to their culture, and to attend schools contrary to their way of learning. We were actually not even allowing the enslaved to learn how to read. And then, then of course, we tried separate but equal. We've had a push to officialize the English language so that Children who are in this country that only speak their native tongue but not ours would be behind the eight ball, ostracized, set back. And here we're now having a discussion that is all about the suppression of culture that's not white, Anglo, Euro-based, I guess heteronormative even. In 2023, we're having this discussion and we still have a movement that wants to suppress even discussing diversity, the existence of diversity, let alone the concepts of equity and inclusion. In 2023, in Georgia, and as these two authors definitely point out, hello, it's the 21st century. The economy is global. We are all interconnected. You can FaceTime someone in another country without a long delay. (laughs) You don't have to wait on a postcard to hear that someone is doing well on the other side of the globe. You can literally get on FaceTime or Google Meet or whatever the other options are and physically see that they're fine in the exact same time frame that you exist, but we're going to pretend that diversity doesn't exist? We're not going to mold our kids in schools today to be ready to embrace the globalization of their future? Great piece. I'm going to share in today's show notes. That's actually going to wrap up the show for the day and the week. 
Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. Past episodes, hear my conversation with Marianne Williamson running for president now at ronshowatl.com. Have a great weekend.